So this story of Acts, the, literally the acts of the apostles, the acts, the actions of the followers of Jesus, is an account of the very first churches, the very first followers of Jesus. When Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended miraculously into the clouds, he left with his followers a mission, a task that they were to complete. And that was to simply be witnesses to what they had seen and learned from Jesus. And to share this good news that, that God is not far off and up there and out there, but God is with us in Jesus. And He has promised to never forsake us and never leave us alone in Jesus Christ. And with that, we have good news that is too good to keep a secret. And this movement began as the people spread out to share this good news. First in their hometown of Jerusalem, then to kind of their home state, Judea. And then to the neighboring people that they really didn't like, to Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. And in this last couple of chapters, we've seen this movement spread to that last category, to the ends of the earth. So much so that this chapter outlines for us the birth of the church in Europe. This is the first time that the gospel goes outside of the Middle and the ancient Near East, but it goes all the way to Europe. It makes it to Philippi, to where all of a sudden the names start to sound Greek. And everything that we see is on our trajectory toward the center of the known world at this particular time that we'll get to at the end of this book, Rome. So we're on this journey where this good news is, is being preached and, and it's changing people's lives as they hear that God loves them and has done something sacrificially for them in Jesus Christ. A movement begins. A movement that they can't seem to keep quiet. In fact, every single time that the movement gains momentum, it also gains opposition. And people do not like, they do not like a break in their tradition. And persecution ensues. So as this good news goes to Philippi, Paul and his friend Silas, along with Luke and their young apprentice Timothy, make their way and share this good news in Philippi. So let's begin, if you will, we'll pick up where we left off a little bit and try to overlap in verse 16, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, remember it was a place of prayer because they're outside of the Jewish world at this point, there's no synagogue for them to begin in, instead there were only small gatherings of people, not necessarily in a large sanctuary or a large temple or synagogue, but a place of prayer. I guess in here you could probably say Rosa Parks Elementary, right? There's no steeple on Rosa Parks Elementary just yet. But as they were going to the place of prayer, a makeshift meeting place for people who loved God, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged, him, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. 
The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and then gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they drew them into prison, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to you, or excuse me, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I hope that we not only read God's Word here, but my prayer is ultimately that God's Word begins to read us. We don't simply open it up but it also, through the Spirit of God, speaks to us and opens us up, even if that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, I am so grateful for the opportunity to get to, on a weekly basis, stand here and teach the Bible to you. Um, I am so humbled by it. And the grace that you show me, the patience you show me, um, the forgiveness you show me for the silly things that I say, um, I pray that, and I've, I've seen this, the evidence of this, God shows you the grace. You can tell, well, that's Jonathan just being dumb or going, oh, wow, this is God speaking. And so I'm honored to do that. And the commitment I want to make to you is that I will continue to do that as long as you will allow me to stand before you and preach God's word, then I will do my best to only make much of Jesus. And if you'll listen, I promise, I will only tell you what the Bible says. And so we see this picture, this narrative, in which the Spirit of God directs a movement as we saw last week, the Spirit of God opens up different doors. The Spirit of God changes different things. 
The Spirit of God changes hearts and causes an uproar. It even makes some people angry. It frustrates some people who were previously in power. It makes some people who think they're in control feel like they're out of control. And so they begin to retaliate. And even though they, they think that what they believe is right, when they're challenged that Jesus is actually in control, that Jesus is actually Lord, some people find that to be incredibly liberating, to be incredibly freeing, and some people find that to be incredibly frustrating. And last week we saw this story of a person like Lydia and a person like this slave girl both join the very first women's liberation movement. And their liberation wasn't from their standing, it wasn't from what the society told them that they ought to be and do, but their liberation was instead from a life void of the good news of Jesus. So that Lydia, a business owner, a fashionista, quite literally, someone who had been very successful and profitable in the fashion industry, selling purple clothing, purple diving, dye, that's like the best of the best to the most expensive kinds of crowd all the way down to a slave girl who has been nothing but a victim her entire life, been mistreated, and treated like property as long as she can remember. And this first liberating thing we see taking place is that these people, regardless of their place, whether they kind of have their act together like Lydia, and whether you and I kind of have our world put together, our finances are in order, well respected by the people around us, people listen when we speak, even we, especially Lydia, shows us that our self-righteousness, our best day, leaves us painfully and woefully short compared to God's righteousness. And we desperately need the good news of Jesus to set us free, to change us. But also, you see a, a girl who had known nothing but oppression her entire life, a girl that had known nothing but being mistreated her entire life, and she also is set free by the power of Jesus' name. She was under the captivity, quite literally, not only of her slave masters, but also of apparently a demon. And lo and behold, they don't come along and say, hey, slave girl, you need to get your act together and be more like Lydia. Instead, by the power of Jesus, she's also set free. And just in case just in case you haven't gotten it through your head that Jesus sets people free, Luke tells us a story, just in case we haven't quite got the picture, Luke tells us a story of some guys who literally are thrown in jail and set free by the power of Jesus. So just in case you didn't catch like the first couple of stories in this chapter, Luke makes it especially clear for people who are a little dense like me, a little slow to catch on. If you didn't catch the fact that Lydia, who had her act together, gets set free and has a new life, her, her heart is open, the Bible tells us, by God. And just in case you didn't catch that, not only did that take place, but Jesus sets this slave girl free of the power of a demon. Just in case you didn't catch that, that Jesus sets you free, he tells us a story about how Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. And by the end of the chapter, a miracle takes place. Because you see, God's sovereign rule brings out good results even in bad circumstances. Especially when we experience persecution. And as a result, we begin to see that we are able to praise God in any and all circumstances, not because things are great, but because 
Jesus saves, sets us free. God protects us and God preserves us. And so you see kind of three different sections, I think, in, in this particular passage we've picked out. First, you see the persecution that comes from within and without. Then you see the nature of what praise and worship to God ought to look like. And then you see that God saves and preserves. He even protects us. So this is not uncommon. Psalm chapter 76 puts it this way. Surely the wrath of men, even the wrath of men, shall praise you. The remnant of those who are wrathful, you will put on like a belt. So even the psalmist kind of predicts a day in which those who are angry and rebellious against God, those who are kind of living in animosity towards God, and you may find yourself sympathizing with that position very much today. Like, you know, I always joke, like the two tenets of faith for atheism is I don't believe in God and I'm really angry at Him, right? It's like, I don't believe in God. Well, why don't you believe in God? Because how could there be a God of blah, blah, blah? And you're like, time out, time out. So you're angry at this potential God that you don't really believe in. And, and that's, that really kind of resonates with me even as a believer, I find myself going, how can there be a God if this is the case? But even from the beginning, God, God, for some amazing and miraculous reason, desires the praise and communion of people like you and me who want to run away from God as far as we possibly can. And He actually loves taking things that are ugly, broken, and making something beautiful of them. We sing about this on a regular basis. Genesis 45 is a story uh, of a guy by the name of Joseph who is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. Granted, he was kind of an arrogant dude who, who told them that one day he was going to rule over them. That's not something you should tell older brothers. Just tip for you there. Don't provoke them. But that's what he did. His brothers betrayed him, sold him off into slavery. And everywhere he went, God protected him. God preserved him until up in the point where at the end of the story, Joseph is in a position in command over Egypt where he can kill and exact revenge on his brothers who betrayed him. And instead, he says, what you meant for evil, what you meant to destroy me, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. God loves doing this. God regularly takes places where there is brokenness and animosity, and he desires to draw people to himself in it. The persecution of the early church as we've seen for the last year, Acts 4, 5, 7, 8, and 12 shows that God actually does something amazing in the worst of circumstances. In fact, this is the root of the gospel, is it not? That God took the most heinous and awful crime, the betrayal and killing of His only begotten and beloved Son, and instead of exacting revenge, he used it as a means to forgive, as a means to restore people who are far from God, including the people, as Jesus says in one of his last words, who tried to kill him. Father, not kill them, strike them with lightning, which is what I would say from the cross if I could muster up the breath. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know. They don't even know what they're doing. And God uses these amazing things, these terrible, awful things to do good. Acts chapter 11, there's a summary even of one of the worst things we've seen up to this point that kind of sets the tone for our story. In chapter 6, you'll remember a guy by the name of Stephen, after preaching the good news, made so many people angry that they turned on him, threw stones at him until he died. And right before he died, he said in, in a Jesus-esque way, 
God, forgive these people as well. Receive me, Father. And Acts chapter 11 summarizes what happens. It says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen in verse 19, those people who were scattered because they didn't want to die like Stephen, right? They scattered and they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to the Jews. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, the not religious people, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so what was meant to destroy the church by striking terror and fear into the hearts of people by killing Stephen actually served to advance the spread of the Gospel and the growth of God's kingdom. And every single moment, at every single turn, where people turn against this movement of the Gospel, every single time it happens, something amazing takes place. God uses it. He takes something beautiful. He takes something ugly and He makes something amazing and beautiful out of it. Such that things that were meant even for the destruction of these first followers of Jesus end up being used to glorify Christ. It's a regular occurrence. It happens over and over and over again. It starts even with Jesus. I mean, who would have thought that Jesus being turned over and betrayed by the people who were supposed to love Him and care for Him the most, who would have thought that in the darkest moment where Jesus should have been the angriest, He cries out to God, feeling forsaken, and also declares forgiveness for the people who have turned against Him. And so you see the same picture here. Something terrible takes place. The Gospel goes out, saves some lives, liberates some people, but then in the end, it really makes some people angry. It makes them quite angry. And the first thing you see is that the enemy, the enemy to the Gospel, we'll call this enemy the accuser. The Bible calls him Satan or the devil. However you want to personify this evil, the enemy is always attacking the church. Either from within, through infiltration, or from without, through persecution. So look at the the infiltration that seems to take place here. Like There's a slave girl who says exactly what they've been saying. Look, cry out. These servants are from the Most High God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. But apparently she's not saying that in such a way to draw attention to Jesus. She's doing it in such a way to distract. So much so, and this is what I love about the Bible, it never glosses over the human element. It says that Paul was greatly annoyed, which is a really polite way of saying probably what he really was thinking. And turns and in the power of Jesus' name sets this free. And so there seems to be a distraction taking place from within. It's almost as if this is like a sleeper cell. Like, oh yes, these men are servants of the Most High God. It's almost like she agrees. It appears that she is on board with whatever the apostles are teaching. But for whatever reason, God gives through His Spirit the ability to discern this, and the disciples say, no, she's being a distraction. Shut your mouth. That's enough. And by the power of the name of Jesus, she's set free. What an amazing and awesome thing that even in the midst of persecution, God does something amazing from inside. But I want you to see something that's particularly important here. I want to spend maybe a little bit more time on it than I should, and we'll maybe speed through the rest of the passage. But in the light of the last couple of weeks, I I think this might be worth addressing. You see something really important here in spite of this persecution Even though the enemy is doing something, you see something happening in the enemy here that I think is worth seeing. The inhumane cruelty of slavery 
can be seen here. Did you catch it? Instead of rejoicing in her deliverance, her owners became enraged when they saw that their hope of profit was gone. Did you catch that? Instead of being excited for her well-being, oh, she's no longer possessed by a demon. Good for her. Instead, they were enraged because they lost their potential profits. This is always the case. The love of money always blurs our spiritual perception. Later, Paul encourages Timothy with words that are often taken out of context, but he says it this way. He says, those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, here's slavery, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So there's a beautiful thing here. Jesus puts sin out of business, right? Anytime Jesus sets people free, he starts to put sin out of business. Oh, I pray for the day when so many people have come to the beautiful and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that sin no longer becomes profitable in our culture. I don't think it's going to happen until he comes back, but in little pieces and little bits, you start to see this happen. Jesus changes our heart and our appetite for things that are sinful, our appetite for things that are, that are destructive, things that are rebellious against God. Jesus starts to take away. But you see what happens, this inhumane cruelty, that people would rather profit from what's broken than to rejoice in the way that they've been set free. Just stop for a minute here. Um, there are many people that you and I, if we're honest, with ourselves, there are many people who are oppressed and treated poorly, and that treatment, that mistreatment and oppression of them is a direct benefit to us. We derive pleasure or some sort of profit from their oppression. You see this sometimes uh, directly related to this in our own culture. Do you remember when like coffee all of a sudden got expensive between the last uh, five to 15 years? And everyone is like, oh, we're entitled to cheap coffee. Well, yeah, as long as you're willing to like, pay people who grow coffee on farms and grow coffee beans nothing and subject them to terrible living conditions, then you're right. You are entitled to cheap coffee. But here's a, just a, I mean, I'm, I'm the first one to admit, like, I didn't know coffee. I thought, I thought coffee was cheap. I thought it just showed up on boats and then like, you just, it, it fell out and, oh, it's free. Awesome. I didn't know oh, there's people who grow this. There's people who work and slave in this in, in developing countries. I didn't know that. And lo and behold, here we are, Americans going, oh, I, you know, and, and we either go, oh, I'm really glad that these people are getting a fair wage, what we would call fair trade coffee now. Or if you're like me, instead of delighting in their fair treatment, you go, I'm entitled to cheap coffee. On a regular occasion you and i benefit from the oppression and mistreatment of others and this seems to paint a picture of what the christian faith does to our perception of that people who love and follow jesus and have received this free gift of god's grace have a problem when other people are not treated graciously now this can go all over the map the place that it seems to be specific here is the treatment of this slave girl I would challenge you to do some research this week on the slave trade that is alive and well 
in our present developed society. People treated like a commodity, specifically girls. Whenever people, whenever people want to oppress someone, it's always the weakest, it's children and it's women who seem to bear the brunt of it. Including this girl. Such that when she gets set free from a demon, her owners aren't happy for her, but they're angry. And I would just push this into your consciousness. Is there a place where you and I might be profiting from the mistreatment of somewhere else? I'll give you the hint. This is the, the worst one. It's, it's reality television, right? We regularly, we, 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 in, we are not, not only does a network profit from it, but we like, we're entertained by someone else's pain, right? And so, so producers know this, and they're like, you want to make good reality TV? Let's find the most messed up, broken people we can, and let's see if they'll let us follow them around with a camera so that the American public can go, oh my goodness. Either we go like, hey, at least I'm not that crazy, um, or we literally watch their terrible family um, situation unravel before them, and we go, and we just sit there and watch. And we derive pleasure from it, and some people profit from it. And some of it's harmless, like good old swamp people, uh, who hunt alligators, judy him, judy him in the head. You know, and that's, oh, that's funny for about 15 minutes. But then there's the worst, and I think we've seen this in the last couple weeks. No one cared about this Duggar family until all of a sudden something particularly egregious, something particularly upsetting to us took place. And I would just argue, let us have, if, if we're going to do this, if we're going to profit from people's problems, then let us make sure we at least address them directly with the good news of Jesus. And if we're going to be any better than these slave owners who didn't, instead of celebrating this victory over this slave girl, and instead they just were angry that they didn't profit, let us also be very vocal about the ways in which we profit and benefit from the mistreatment of other people. It's everywhere. The pornography industry is built on it. It's built on treating human beings like a property. Treating people that they're only good for the profit that they bring. Oh, that we would be so turned off by the oppression and mistreatment of people who bear the image of God that we would never be turned on by their mistreatment. Let us never be caught in this situation where we're actually angry that we're not entitled to entertainment, pleasure, or profit at the expense of someone else. I'll step away from that. I hope that's literally a girl who is enslaved and and her, her masters do not rejoice that she comes out of that slavery. Instead, they're angry by it. Let us not be that. But instead, let us realize that even though... The enemy was trying to use that as a way to persecute and undermine the good news going out. There's also another way that this persecution takes place, and it's from these people on the outside who get really angry. And they begin to accuse them of things. Some of them are technically true. They're Jews, yes. Anti-Semitism is not a new thing, all right? Hitler didn't invent it. It's kind of a thing. Apparently, when you say that God has chosen you, it makes people angry even today, right? God chose me. Oh, really? Well, that's, 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 you keep that one to yourself. And in Acts chapter 18, Emperor Emperor Claudius, we find out, actually expels all the Jews from the city of Rome. 
And it might explain even why Timothy, you'll notice, and Luke weren't dragged out and accused in in chapter 16 here. Did you catch that? Paul and Silas were dragged and they were accused, they're Jews, but it doesn't mention Timothy or Luke. Why? Luke was a Greek, Timothy was a half-Greek. Anti-Semitism is not new. But they said it's not lawful for us to accept this. This is technically true. And this is what causes most of the persecution throughout the first couple centuries of the church. So to be a Roman citizen, this is not new. Most empires have an imperial religion, right? The, the, the most common for us, we see this in, uh, as, as the Spaniards, the Portuguese came and took over most of what is now cent- Central America. They had what was called their requerimiento, and they would read it and say, you have to become faithful to, you know, faithful subjects to the queen, but you also have to be faithful subjects to their church, and they would sometimes read this requirement to these people, not even in their own language, and they would kill them if they didn't come to their side. But this also happened in the Republic of Mexico. War in 1845. To join or to be a part of the Republic of Mexico, you had to be Roman Catholic and be a part of this Mexican church. This is nothing new. In fact, to be a Roman citizen meant that you believed in the imperial religion which included that there are many gods that protect the Roman Empire. And if you don't worship these gods, well, then they're going to get angry, and they're going to be against us. So much so that they believed that God on earth was Caesar. And they called him Soter, Greek word that means Savior. And along comes these Christians, and they go, no, 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 Caesar, you are not our Savior. There is one who is Jesus, and he is Lord of all things, and he has saved us. When you go and you tell the leader of the empire, no, not you, but rather Jesus, they get angry. So this is technically true. They, they, were, they were kind of falsely accused for some of the things they did, but there's a sense in which they're true. It, look, they're saying that we should believe and follow Jesus, which is unlawful for us to do. And so in persecution ensues. They lock them up, beat them, throw them in the inner prison, the worst place to possibly be. But then the next thing you see takes place. It's really beautiful. Even though the persecution takes place, we find out that followers of Jesus do not find joy in their circumstances, but instead they find joy in spite of them. Did you catch the first thing they did here? About midnight, Paul and Silas, they were in prison, verse 25. And what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God. Our picture and our perspective and our hopes for worship and singing together can be wrapped up in this little passage. It can be summarized. Why do you sing songs? Why? Well, it's not necessarily because you're happy. You might have had the worst week of the world. But we sing not because of our circumstances. We sing in spite of them. Christians have this crazy, otherworldly experience of joy. In spite, of no matter, in spite of all the things that happen. And you see a picture of the first church, right? They sing together, and then as you get to the end, they eat together. Right? If there's, there's two things that we love doing together, that would be at least two of the top ten, right? We're going to sing together. Maybe not because we don't feel good, but we, we sing because God's done something. And we say something about Jesus. Who, who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Jesus alone. Right? Who is greater than Caesar? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Who can bust what's broken in my family? Our God is healer. 
We come along and we say, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Week after week, we do this. We do this. This is happening amongst us. We're not singing because things are awesome. I know all of you in this room well enough to know that that's not the case. In fact, some of you right now are carrying the most unbelievably heavy burdens. And right now, some of you are carrying guilt. You're carrying shame. And you are carrying a terrible string of bad decisions. And you are carrying a terrible string of bad decisions perpetrated against you. And we're not singing because those things are awesome. We're singing because God's done something for us in Jesus that's bigger and better than those things. So much so that even if we're thrown in prison for it, we can still celebrate. I mean, look at their picture of worship. They're in prison. You know what we should do? We should start a, a praise and worship service. Right here, right now. Let's start singing. And it says the prisoners were the ones that were hearing them. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake. Get the picture here. When we praise Jesus, people get set free. In fact, even when we're declaring words that we sometimes don't believe, I mean, those are difficult words to say, right? If our God is for us, then who could stop us? If God is with us, then what could be against us? I mean, I don't know. My life doesn't necessarily promote that kind of a truth. But even when we begin to say those words as though they are true, something amazing happens. Something amazing happens. People get set free. And those things that hold us and those things that have power over us Piece by piece, when we confess how good Jesus is and confess what he's done for us, more and more we are set free from the things that hold us from it. The things that hold us and keep us captive. But there's also something beautiful that takes place here. I don't know if you caught this. Um, The person that might be holding you back or holding you down right now might be the person Jesus wants to save next. An amazing thing takes place here. The guy that's holding them back. It says they beat them. You'd have to probably assume that this warden, this jailer, was probably a part of it. And he was holding them captive. Literally. Again, Luke doesn't want you to get caught up just in the metaphors. He's like, literally, the guy holding you captive and keeping you in jail might be the next person Jesus wants to save. This is radical. Because I wouldn't do this. Right? I'm in jail. The jailer who's keeping me in there. All of a sudden, Jesus miraculously, through our worship, sets us free And now the jailer's like, oh no, I had one job. And he's like, I'm going to kill myself. You know what I would do? Go for it, buddy. You got it. Don't miss. You keep me in jail? You want to kill yourself? That's cool. And look at their vision here. It isn't of vengeance or their own well-being. It's of the gospel being preached. And prisoners who are set free go, wait, 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 wait. Don't do it. Their worship was so powerful that a miracle ensued. God shook the foundations. A miniature earthquake knocked down all the doors. So just stop for a second and make an observation there. Um, One of my favorite passages in 2 Chronicles 22, and when the army of the Lord goes out before the enemy, the king says, send men with instruments to lead us in worship. So when they go into the battle, they didn't send the Marines, right? They didn't send drones or their greatest weaponry. They sent men to lead us in worship. Hang on just a second, men. Make sure you catch that. Men start a worship thing here. I don't, I don't know when it became not cool for men to sing, but it really hasn't. It's not cool anymore. I mean, I think like Frank Sinatra still made it manly to sing. 
But then it started to turn down, right? I mean, like the minute someone sang in front of people wearing tight leather pants, that was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? I mean, you're like, oh, I mean, and, and, and now, and, and, and they become the, the butt of our jokes, right? The minute, you know, <laughs> you know the, minute, the minute a guy with a white glove does a moonwalk across the stage, now we're like, oh, okay, singing for men, that's, it's weird, right? Because this is men, we're, we're like, this is us, right? And, and so, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's the beginning of the end here, but I want to sh- point to something that's countercultural within the church. We don't see it that way. Right? We're not afraid, God help us, to look like Justin Bieber singing. We believe that God has done something, that men jump out first boldly before the enemy, even in prison, to lead a declaration of the gospel. This is, rap- this is rac- radically different, isn't it? This is not what the culture tells men to do, is it? And yet, what does these first followers of Jesus do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm in prison. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sing to Jesus. What a picture of what men ought to look like. And it so radically changed the chain of events here. God performs a miracle, knocks off the doors, and unhinges literally this guy's life. God saves these people. And the next person, or the, the next person to come to realize it is the person who just moments before was their oppressor. Oh, that we would experience persecution, experience hardship in such a way that when people see us, they want what we've got. This means that Christians don't complain like anyone else. This means that instead of just commiserating, we get together and we say, our God's greater. Don't miss the radical, countercultural thing that is that we participate in on a, on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad that we're, we're, we're not there yet, right? And there's some of you, you're hanging out and you're going, this is weird. You're right, it's weird. This thing that we do for Jesus, it looks weird. It looks really weird. Name another place in the culture where people just get together and sing songs about something, right? There's like the national anthem before sports, and then there's crazy Europeans when they sing songs in the middle of a soccer game. That's a sermon illustration about joy and, and, and spontaneous worship, isn't it? And this guy feels like his world falls apart. Did you catch that? He says, I'm going to kill myself. This is over. Make sure you you don't miss this. One of the last things that God does that's so powerful, and you see the picture of here, is that God saves. He protects and then He preserves His people for their good and for His glory. God saves. Even the people who are oppressing us, God, God wants to save them. Instead of crying out that they would kill Him, Paul and Silas wanted God to save them. Get this, he experienced failure. I don't know if you caught this. He says he was about to kill himself. This jailer had just experienced suicidal failure. Can, can you relate to that? What's the thing in your life? Like if this fell apart, I don't even want to live anymore. Can you picture that? What's the thing like, hey, if this breaks down, if I lose this, I'm just going to kill myself. Be honest with yourself. What's that thing? Because here's the scary truth. Our God loves us so much that He might be willing to take that thing out of your hands so that you would have a greater and deeper and longer lasting joy in Him. And it wasn't until the jailer experienced catastrophic failure. It wasn't until that 
God manifests his power to the jailer in a way that literally, do you catch this? Brought him to his knees. That he began to open up to the possibility that God has done something for him. And he cries out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Don't miss that. Because what happens to us when bad things take place reveals what we believe about God. And it's possible that God wants to remove those idols, those things that we worship more than Him, not to make us miserable, but to set us free and give us something greater. You may be in this place. Maybe right now you can relate to this jailer, jailer, right? You are in the place of suicidal failure. Like, what am I doing here? Why, Why even go on? Can I tell you good news? He says, what do I have to do to be saved? Literally, probably, he meant his life, right? How must I be saved from dying? The first answer is that apparently these followers of Jesus were radical, so they didn't even get out. No one else did either. The walls fell off, and they didn't leave. But he's like, how should I be saved? Here's, Here's good news for you in this. The thing that you now are placing your hope and trust in at some point, you're going to realize that it won't deliver the joy that it promises. At some point, you're going to get to a place where you realize that thing that you thought was going to give you that joy is going to fail. And God means to use that moment to open your eyes to something greater. And God doesn't mean to destroy you with it, but instead, He means to take away something that is harmful to give you something that will give you life. God does something here. Brings a person to suicidal failure. And it's only in the moment where it falls apart. And God did it, did He not? Right? His only job was to keep people inside the prison. And God came and tore the walls off the prison. Ripped the doors off. His one job has been undermined by this miraculous deed that God's done. And yet through it, He seeks This good news. What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, he says, here's what you do. You believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And the content of the Christian message is found right in this phrase. Notice what he doesn't say. Think of all the things that we as Christians often tell people they ought to do. And notice how none of them are found here. What do I do? How how am I delivered from my current predicament? And they say, you believe. You believe that the ultimate Lord is not your supervisor who might kill you for letting these people escape. Your ultimate Lord is Jesus who has already been killed so that you can escape freely forever. Your ultimate fate is not sealed by Caesar and your commanding officer. Your ultimate fate was put to death by the order of Caesar's men and he walked out victoriously to prove to you that they have no power anymore. Caesar already did his best to Jesus, and Jesus walks out of the grave. Hey, jailer, don't worry. Trust in Jesus. Those guys can't do anything to you that they didn't already do to Jesus. And guess what? Because we're in Jesus and we trust in what he's done for us, they can't do anything worse to us either. And in the same way that it had no ultimate or final power over Jesus, so too us who have our faith in Christ and are united with him have no power in this world lording over us including the one thing that seems to lord over all of us, and that's even death. 
Don't kill yourself. Believe, trust in what Jesus has done. And you will be saved. It says also you and your household. So he says, believe. Believe you. And then he says something that's commensurate with this movement. You believe, but also tell your whole family to believe. And it says that they did believe. It says they became, and they were baptized. Now, some people use this as an argument to say that, like, they baptized children. That's a problem because I don't know if you caught in verse 34. It says that they rejoiced because the entire household had believed in God. So this is just, a, I mean, that's not a knock. It's just this is kind of why we do what we do. Uh, this is why we believe kind of baptistically in terms of, of baptism. Baptism comes with faith, and it's just really hard to make your babies believe something, right? It's really hard to make your kids confess sin. I'm trying, okay? It's just not working, right? And so the baptism that comes with faith and repentance, it's just difficult, right? And that whole other thing when you put a baby underwater and bury him in, in the water, CPS gets really ticked. Don't do it. So faith comes by hearing, and this apparently is, uh, is visible here in this family that all hears and believes. So get this straight for us. God's done something here. It's amazing. Paul and Silas are a part of something in spite of persecution. And then it says that they kind of throw a fit to the magistrates so that this early church, did you, did you catch what happened? He go, they go back to Lydia. Remember Lydia had it all together? They go back and encourage her, hopefully having kind of set a precedent of like, leave these people alone. Stop beating them and throwing them in jail. And maybe securing some bit of peace for, or at least peaceful relationship for this church that starts in Philippi. They went back to Lydia's house and encouraged them. And the jailer even, because his heart had been transformed, washed their wounds and served them. The gospel turns the world upside down such that persecution gives way to growth and even encouragement. Because of the gospel, we see our city just like missionaries see the city. We don't want them to die and kill themselves. We want them to see the goodness of Jesus. And we're not adversaries to those who don't understand us and hurt us even those who have power over us, and even those who use that power to harm us, we look at them just like Jesus did, the way that Jesus looked at those who had power over him, and we say, Father, God, as a, in a way that only you can do, forgive them. But just in case you didn't catch that God sets people free through Jesus, Luke tells us a story where that literally happens. And the, li- and the li- jailer's livelihood had to be destroyed for him to see God's saving mercy. And how does it end? They sing in a prison and they eat together. What a beautiful picture for us to emulate as a group of people, right? In spite the circumstances, we praise God for His goodness. In spite the fact that we have enemies, we pray for them. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless them. And we'll take every opportunity we can to share with them that this good news that Jesus has done something for us, can save your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We declare that just like this slave girl, um, we, are, we are subject to, to things that are destructive to us. It seems that there are things that have power over us. We thank you that ultimately the name of Jesus is the power to change that, to set us free. So if we're like Lydia and we think we've got our act together, help us to see that we still need you. 
we still need you. In fact, maybe even more so than the people who are rebellious. We who are self-righteous think we've got it figured out and we've forgotten that you are the one who saves. It is in your name that we find refuge. But if maybe if we're like this slave girl, maybe we're oppressed or maybe we see oppression around us, help us to respond with this good news of Jesus. That by the power of the name of Jesus, those who are captive can be set free. So for those of us in this room, maybe right now we're subject to something that is lording over us. Maybe physical, actual, through our employment, through our family, through our state in life, there's something that just gives us guilt, shame, gives us trouble and pain. Would you begin now to show us, open our eyes to the possibility that you have done something that can set us free from all of that. You have done something to replace that pain with joy. And the good news is not that we have to clean up ourselves, but the good news is that you have done something on our behalf. God, maybe if we feel like we're really in prison right now, if there's some of us that we feel like there's something holding us back, God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in the strong name of Jesus that is the power to save and to set us free. Help us to seek you and praise you in spite of our circumstances. Help us to love those who persecute us so that in the end we see this great movement that you started in Jesus spread, change our hearts, and change the hearts of people around us. It's only through the power of your spirit that this can happen. We celebrate that name of Jesus. Amen.